The following podcast contains explicit language. I found it notable that he had to read pretty carefully these scripted words. We see the soul of him when he's flying off the handle and when he's tweeting. Why, for the president, does it seem easier to suggest U.S. intelligence operatives are behaving like Nazis than to call these actual Nazis Nazis? Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Trumpcast is the show about the man who, to no one's surprise, has been reluctant to condemn the brute racism he spent his whole career countenancing, expressing, and enacting. Donald Trump. I'm talking about the murder of one, the deaths of two, and the injuries of 20 in Charlottesville, Virginia, as a result of the violent demonstration of Nazis and white supremacists on Saturday. Yep, as we all know, the protesters that Trump has encouraged with first his muted non-condemnation. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides, on many sides. And then his seemingly gunpoint spiel about how we need to love each other. Trump is so loving. We must love each other, show affection for each other, and unite together in condemnation of hatred, bigotry, and violence. Those protesters were the kind of Hitler hair Mein Kampf Nazis, not like soup Nazis or, or feminazis, those Martinet fascists who want equal pay and a sliver of reproductive freedom. Oh, no, these were goose steppers with swastikas, and Trump kind of loves them. And these are exactly the basket of deplorables that mom warned us about. Oh, Hillary, I miss you more every day. Maybe HBO should make an easy, feel-good, counterfactual show about the presidency of Putin's arch-rival, Hillary Clinton. And they could scrap their alt-history show about the Confederacy having won because today that doesn't seem like a counterfactual. It's not alternative history anymore because the fascists seem to be winning, enabled by a Nazi sympathizer president. That's today. Alt-history is not alt-history anymore. Joining me to talk about Charlottesville and the day some have called the most disgraceful of Trump's presidency is my co-host, Jamel Bowie. Jamel and I both went to UVA in Charlottesville, and Jamel still lives there. He reported on the event and the attack on Saturday. All that coming up right after this. Today, my guest is my co-host at Trumpcast. That's Jamel Bowie. He's Slate's chief political correspondent and a political analyst at CBS News. Jamel, I'm so happy to have you here. Believe it or not, we've only met, what, one, two times? Yes, I think just twice. And one thing I like whenever I see you is to accost you and talk about our alma mater, the University of Virginia, which, of all places, exists in Charlottesville, Virginia. That's right. And you you liked UVA more than I did. I fa- I got there and they just explicitly, this is uh, 1980 redacted that I got there in 1987, and they gave me a um, tour of the campus and pointed out a lot of the Jim Crow features of it that were still in existence, including the black bus stop and naturally the segregated fraternity and sorority systems. Um, that year, they were doing something really progressive. In 87, they let women, girls who wanted to join sororities but who were white go through a tour of the, quote, service sororities, the black sororities, so we could sort of see how the other non-half lived. And it was really chilling. And there were other things, too, like they had a jeans day to show support for people who were gay, support meaning like you didn't think that they should be killed. 
And the campus was, no kidding, a sea of madras. That, that, that sounds familiar. I mean, that was still going on when you got there, slightly later? Um, not not quite. I mean, I think I think the, the madras, that's never going to go out of style, EVA. <laughs> um, but when I was there, I think, which would have been from 2005 to 2009, I think the school had progressed somewhat. Um, there was a pretty vocal and um, well-represented Black Student Alliance and Minority Rights Coalition. There were more people of color on grounds, period. Uh, there are more opportunities for uh, people of color and white students to be in contact with each other. I had to do something. Uh, first years, I think, had to do something called sustained dialogue, where they basically like got in small groups of people who look different than them and talked about, I don't know, stuff. And uh, in retrospect, at the time, I thought it was silly. In retrospect, I think it was a good idea that could have been executed better. But I, you know, I had plenty of friends who experienced, you know, plenty of racist incidents around Pratt around Rugby Road, which is where the crowds are. And while I was there, you know, there was an incident where one of the corner bars passed a new dress code that was basically meant to keep black people out. The year or two years before I got there, a black woman who was running for student body president was, like, attacked with racial slurs. So it's not, you know, UVA is a work in progress. Well, that progress is a good word for today because uh, we are further along in time than when you were at UVA and certainly when I was. And yet there's this, uh, you know, there was the spectacle and the murder um, of Heather Heyer on Saturday in Charlottesville, um, which has been represented as very far from the university. In fact, the university early on came out against this, but I am curious and I haven't seen covered much how many students participated in the um, would-be protest and the violence and who sign on with Unite the Right. I mean, I best, as best I can tell, there weren't very many University of Virginia students involved in the Unite the Right protest. It's just, and obviously it's, it's, there's, there's, there's an extent to which it's impossible to tell, but I just... I don't think in in the in subsequent kind of the aftermath of all of this, no one no I don't think any University of Virginia students have been identified. Now in the counter protest, students had a very large presence and the um counter protest on Friday night where the the students or the, the people who were surrounded by United the Right attendees who were carrying torches and pepper spray those are mostly students. Okay, so my effort to drag down the besmirch the name of my alma mater fails <laughs> today on Trumpcast, um, and uh, I won't take it off my resume yet. Um, I want to hear more about this piece. You know, there the, this piece of yours in Slate is called "There Was a White Power Movement Showing Its." Or sorry, this was a white power movement showing its strength. So. Rather than a terrorist group or um, or a, certainly not a you know peaceful exercise of uh, the First Amendment, you see this as as a as a show of strength, as a shock and awe, and you say it was effective. Yeah, I mean, I think it's striking that these people did not wear masks, they didn't wear sunglasses, they didn't wear hats. They marched in open daylight. They were fine to have their pictures taken by media. I mean, these were not people who were remotely afraid or, or ashamed of what they were doing, weren't worried about the possible repercussions. And I think that demonstrates the extent to which they felt emboldened. And while they made an attempt basically to claim city space for themselves and that failed, um, the fact that the president of the United States couldn't bring himself 
in the immediate aftermath to denounce them. And the fact that even now, his most recent statement from my quick glance at the coverage, his most recent statement seems basically insincere, like he was forced to do it. I think you can fairly say that they they scored a propaganda victory. Um, Here's the president of the United States equivocating about denouncing a group of white supremacists whose actions resulted in the death of an American citizen. I don't know. I don't know how else how else you read that as as a success. So you've I mean, I've heard you talk on this show and elsewhere about the history of American racism. What is this particular brand of racism? So, I mean, I've read some of the is it the Daily Storm, some of the some of the neo-Nazi, Nazi literature, white supremacist literature. And I'm just trying to kind of see if does it really have its its origins in the some of the like Farrago of Bannon and nativism or it does it seem sort of Russia inflected or or does is it a Bur- John Birch Society kind of idiom? You know, what do you make of what went on ideologically? On Saturday, so I, you know, one of my um, one of the things that made a deep impression on me as uh, as a kid was going to church and hearing sermons preached from Ecclesiastes and the kind of the famous line, the famous refrain from Ecclesiastes that there's nothing new under the sun. And I think that is very much the case here. Ideological white supremacy has a long history of the United States that is as old as the United States itself. It was articulated in some form by Thomas Jefferson uh, in his belief that blacks were biologically inferior and that the United States really only survive as a, as a white polity. Um, and should slavery ever end, Jefferson was convinced that blacks had to be sent away. Otherwise, the whole project wouldn't work. In the sort of 1840s, 1850s, there emerges kind of uh, a new ideological justification for slavery as a positive good based on the idea that the natural place of, of blacks and then other non-whites was uh, in servitude um, and that white supremacy, slavery and, and white supremacy were necessary to creating a truly equal republic. Uh, in the late 19th century, you have kind of the emergence of a, and, and this would actually be like much more, feel much more contemporary because the past ones are kind of biological origins of all the late 19th century and early 20th century forms of ideological racism are also biological. They kind of use a language people might be familiar with, but basically that, uh, you know, democracy and, and European civilization are the, uh, belong to whites, uh, belong to Anglo-Americans, um, baby Germans too. And that it's, it is, uh, the obligation of, of white society to defend white civilization from, from blacks, from uh, other quote degenerate types. And so these guys, these guys in Charlottesville are, are they're, they're drawing on a long tradition, and and while sort of the trappings of their of their language of their of their imagery might be more modern, um, I think the core ideology that the United States is a white country for white men or white people, kind of narrowly defined, these days more expansively defined than in the 1920s, where then whites didn't include, you know, Russians or Italians or so on and so forth. Now that now it does. Yeah, the it, I mean, you started with religion and Ecclesiastes. It is it is interesting. There's a a video. I don't know if you've seen it from the 1940s, making the rounds. Um, a you know, kind of cautionary vignette issued by the U.S. government. I think uh, hopefully Jason will play it for us. And I tell you, friends, we'll never be able to call this country our own until it's a country without. 
Without what? Yeah, without what? Without Negroes. Without alien foreigners. Without Catholics. Without Freemasons. You know What's wrong with the Masons? I'm a Mason. Hey, that fellow's talking about me. And that makes a difference, doesn't it? These are your enemies! Um, and as you say, I don't think people would make much distinction between white ethnics like Italians and Irish. And then, of course, there's the fetishization of Russia by people like Richard Spencer and others. And the implication, I mean, not to get too in the weeds on this, but that, you know, there's some rubles behind some of this, uh, at least some of the propaganda and influence material circulated by today's American white supremacists. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know much uh, about any uh, organizational or sort of you know concrete support between Russia and like you know American white supremacists. But I think, I think it is, it is an interesting um, observation that people like Spencer have this, have, do have this fetishization of Russia as kind of a a white republic, a white Christian republic that represents kind of traditional European values. Now, actual. Like actual Russia is a is and has always been a multicultural society and and, and multi-religious, multi-ethnic society. And the scholars of of Russian history will tell you that the the nation's sort of connection to Europe has always been kind of fraught. Um, and so Spencer's the fetishization of of Spencer and other people like him is very much rooted in kind of a myth and a fantasy. The same myth and fantasy they have about the United States. Since you're a watcher of the legislature, I'm going to ask one of my favorite hopeful questions, which is, did you see in the responses to this, to the violence and display of white power on Saturday, did you see in the responses of the Congress men and women um, in the uh, Republican Party, did you see any of the Republican leadership responding in a way that seemed to suggest that they are breaking with the president? That's interesting because it was clear that quite a few Republicans were disturbed by the president's equivocation and uh, were basically hitting him very hard in a very unusual way. Um, but I don't think I don't think that's going to fundamentally change the basic dynamic. In part because these Republicans still have an agenda they want to pursue, and Trump is kind of the, the most the only way to get that agenda onto the table. Um, and at this stage, it, it doesn't seem, I mean, it doesn't see, it still seems like there are elements that can still make it through. It may be, it may be different if a couple months from now, let's say the Trump White House hasn't been able to get tax reform, tax reform finished either. If that happens, if, if it's looking like we're entering the midterms and the behavior of Trump has basically precluded any attempt to get an agenda done, then I think you may see and next time something like this happens, next time Trump gets gets into hot water like this, I think you may see more serious opposition. But for now, I think we're still in that cycle of Republicans are obviously uneasy and uncomfortable, but not so uneasy and not so uncomfortable that they would make it make a clean break with the president. Um, and no one seems to be. Sh- I mean, while no one is reviving right now, mass deportation and the Muslim ban. Um, and talking about the wall a lot today, there doesn't seem to be slowing down in the voter su- voter suppression initiatives. Is that right? I mean, That's no, right, this right. wasn't um, a wake up call to Jeff Sessions. Right, right, right. Um, and those policies will continue apace. But 
this did seem like a turning point, at least in the discourse around Donald Trump. I think I think that's fair. I mean, I think I, on Sunday I was on uh, Face the Nation, uh, CBS's Sunday Sunday panel show, and it was striking to see mainstream reporters um, for places like the Washington Post kind of forthrightly criticize and denounce the president for not taking a stand here. I do think I think the combination of the content of the Unite the Right demonstration, the fact that someone was killed. Um, and those two things made Trump's pretty typical Trump behavior seem even more disturbing and troubling. And I think that sparked a reaction. And it may be, you know, perhaps kind of erased among, among observers any hope that he may become something like a normal president. I think perhaps that's the change that we now recognize that this is the kind of president we have. And nothing, no, no external events are going to change that back. Jamal, I don't know if, well, we've never sort of mixed it up on Twitter about this, but I did have a very interesting um, tutorial on Twitter by someone who pointed out that the obsession among, in particular, non-Black commenters with Russia and with the Mueller investigation seems to represent a little bit of an effort to just not wrestle with the voice that came through loud and clear in the campaign and in these policies, which is the amplification of racist language and policies and racism as a, you know, system that Trump represents. So if you get get him on obstruction of justice and on a bunch of, you know, a bunch of laws, emoluments that, you know, leave it to the only lawyers understand, then we don't have to say that there's this streak in America. And I have to say that rang a little bit true to me. I mean, it took this guy turned to DM and just was like, you know, that like kind of schooling that you sometimes get on Twitter. And, you know, you sort of showed me that there that that is the wish some of the wishful thinking I have, at least around the Mueller investigation that like this hate wasn't there. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sort of I, I, I generally take the view that like, however, people want to criticize Trump whichever way works for them works for them, you know, like a lot of things to criticize, uh, not everyone needs to be on the same thing. It's sort of my view of all of this is that even if Trump had lost, I think we'd have to have a reckoning as a country and as a society with the kind of, the kind of hatred that, uh, was bubbling up through that campaign and what it says about where we're going. Yeah. But Trump is a president simply makes that even more acute and more urgent. But, um, I don't think there's, I think the Trump phenomena, however it ends, has to make us tackle, we have to tackle these, these, these issues and talk about these, these problems in, in clear and broad-minded ways, or, or we'll simply repeat it all again. Um, yes. I mean, that seems kind of terrifying. I guess what I was sort of like stumbling towards saying is that Charlottesville on Saturday made it clear that even if, you know, by some act of God, he's impeached and indicted and in jail in in four months, that this was a true theme of the campaign. It was not something that only triggered people or snowflakes heard in the campaign and in, you know, the Muslim ban out of the gate. But it was, I for one, I've kind of, I, I didn't understand why we were like, ple- people were pleading with Trump and just so despairing that he didn't, you know, immediately say anything sane 
about white nationalism, white supremacy, when he's cultivated his whole life? Who cares if he does some kabuki of condemnation? You know, this was this, the gaslighting's over. Like, this was an actual Nazi <laughs> march. And we can't, nobody can have their head in the sand about it anymore. Right. I think, I think, that, I think that conclusion is just, is just right. Um, well, thanks so much for talking to me on a huge day for you and a rough day for your city and my college town. No, it's, it's my pleasure, Virginia. I'm glad to, glad to be able to join you. And that's it for our show today. But before we take off, you have to be following us on Twitter by now, right? I mean, if not, why not? We're there at Real Trumpcast. That's at Real Trumpcast. It's the best way to keep up with everything going on on Trumpcast, including our upcoming live event in Austin, Texas, for the Texas Tribune Festival. You can get more information on that at slate.com slash live. That's slate.com slash live. Today's show was produced by Jason DeLeon, and I'm Virginia Heffernan for Trumpcast. We promise to stay until this is over. 